Welcome to More Than a Refresh. Today, we are recording from Astoria, Queens, Las Cruces, New Mexico, and Denver-ish, Colorado. Our guest is Lita Kian. Kane. Kane. It is Kane. Okay, Lita Kane. Would you do me so kind as to introduce yourself? Yeah, hello. I'm Lita Kane. My pronouns are they, them, and she, her. I live in the Denver area, and I've been in tech for about seven years, uh, mostly working with a nonprofit school for adults changing careers into technology. Uh, due to layoffs, I'm now back in the job hunt and experiencing all the joys and pains that come with that, that, uh, you know, it's 2023. Uh there's been a lot of changes and upheavals in our industry, so it's been really interesting getting a first-hand experience uh, in some of those changes. Well, hopefully we can help you with that with a little exposure. Uh, you and I met, I believe it was in 2023 at the Silicon Valley Postgres Conference, correct? That's correct. And we had you give a, a keynote. What was that keynote on? Yeah, the keynote that I gave, and again, thank you so much for inviting me to be that speaker. Uh, it was really about... Having a mindset of curiosity and learning uh, in our teams and really encouraging a rookie mindset and ways that we can encourage beginners um, and get out of some of the toxicity that can occur when we really prize expertise over curiosity. And that's an interesting sen uh, sentence. Can you elaborate on that? Evaluating expertise over curiosity. Yeah, of course. For me, what I mean when I say that, um, it's really kind of this, you know, the, the, the friction between growth mindset and fixed mindset. Um, expertise in and of itself, not bad. Having a strong knowledge base, having deep experience, those are all excellent things. Um, the issue comes when we start equating uh, knowledge with rightness and uh, as being better or more valuable than growth and learning. Um, and I think I see it a lot, especially in the current job market where junior developers are having a hard time getting a foothold. Um, that's never been uh, unusual, but especially in a, in a time right now where we have so many great mid-level devs and senior level devs who are also looking for work um, and seeing a lot of teams get a pretty top heavy, uh, it can be really easy to lose sight of all the benefit of potential and of the curiosity, the ability to grow, the ability to be coached, the ability to learn of junior developers. That's an interesting statement. The, uh, I experienced this command prompt. We tend to hire, uh, not always. I mean, sometimes there's just client demand and we must have a senior person. Of course. Have time to build up a junior. Um, but one, I just had an executive panel with it. There's an offshore company in Chicago that invited me to an executive panel. They're trying to understand some of the gaps that they're seeing in the workforce. Um, and it, it comes along the lines of what you're saying in that they're finding that placing senior level devs or mid-level devs is easy, but the junior level devs is harder. And one of the things that I said and I believe this to the core, it's because companies have forgotten that investing in people is always cheaper. It is in your return on investment is always higher. Okay. Let's say 95% cheaper, 95% higher. There's always an exception. There's always some dumbass you hire that just refuses to work. Yeah. Um, but. And that happens at any level, right? Yeah, any, any, level. any dev it, can it, roll in and, and do that. Yeah. And that is very true. 
Um, but what I said was, is that, you know, we have forgotten to invest in our own people. And so you have this situation where it makes more sense to pay, let's say $50,000 a year more because you think in your mind, well, now I'm going to get another half a million dollars a year in return on investment. But in reality, what you're doing is instead of maybe in the short run, you get that half a million. But from a junior dev perspective, it, it's a bell curve, right? And so it comes up and then after say year two, maybe the first year your return on investment is break even. Your second year is let's call it 25%. But the third year is 300, 400%. And it's more than just their billable hours. It's more than just how quickly can they MVP. It's more than just, uh, you know, the fact that you get to hire them at a, at a, a lower salary initially. It's that you're taking a holistic view. They are not assets. They are not resources. They are humans. And when you invest in a human and you invest in a person, generally speaking, the return on investment is so much higher over time than if you look at it as I need a senior level asset. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And I think that that mindset is, like you said, very often lost and that you're absolutely right. Recognizing that workers, developers, they are whole people with the ability to grow and develop with, you know, very, very almost unlimited potential. Um, and I think another thing that drives this, this idea of like, well, we could hire three juniors or we could hire one senior, um, knowing that the senior is going to be able to spin up really fast. I think the flaw in that logic is the work that we do is collaborative. You know, there's a reason we don't have solo rockstar developers as like the only dev on the team anymore. The tech has gotten too complex. The systems that we build are much bigger. The problems we solve are much more novel. And we are better and stronger teams when we are able to work collaboratively. And so hiring one strong developer ultimately is going to be a short gain in a short amount of time. But in the long term, I think you're setting yourself up for tech debt and difficulties with maintainability and things like that. Uh, whereas spreading out the load and really leaning on this concept of community in our teams is a much better play. I have to challenge you a bit. I haven't seen a single problem in the last 32 years of this industry that has been novel and not solved before. I, I can see that point too. Uh, by novel problem, I don't mean like, oh, no one's ever encountered this before. <laughs> by novel, I mean the fact that the context in which we work is constantly shifting and constantly changing and nothing we do is in an island. You know, everything we do, the context of our users changes, the technology and frameworks that they're used to, the hardware that they use, all of it is constantly in a state of flux, which means, yes, there are patterns that we've seen before and we leverage those um, to build wisdom and to build experience and to help us chart forward. But at every moment, you know, no moment that has come or that comes to us has ever happened before, which means the context is new every time. And we can use our past wisdom, but everything that we're doing, the world is constantly changing. Our teams are constantly changing. The tech is constantly developing. And so in some ways, the problems are always fresh, even if the patterns they follow are familiar. That's well, interesting. I would say, especially if you're bringing on junior developers, because they're not problems they have seen before. Sure. Yeah. Um, before we get too deep into some of this, uh, let's talk about your career trajectory. It's been pretty nonlinear. 
Uh, you mentioned where you were before you were recently laid off. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have my own opinions on people that lay off, but, um, what did you do prior to working in tech? Yeah. <laughs> Perennial question. Uh, I think that my background, which is very nonlinear, as you said, um, you know, has reflected more and more of developers' backgrounds. You know, I think there's more and more developers who don't go through that traditional CS degree, working on it, you know, learning code from elementary school onward that we're seeing with a lot of young developers, which is great. Um, My background, uh, my undergraduate degree back in 2009 was in creative writing and also world religions, um, dual major, neither of which leads to a particularly clear career. After that, I had a series of, of course, retail work. I worked, my very first job out of college was uh, working as a portrait photographer at Sears. And then I became a pediatric dental assistant for a while. Um, I did my fair share of food service and retail work. Um, I eventually found work uh, freelance as a SEO copywriter. Uh, and that's search engine optimization, as I'm sure most of your audience is aware, uh, for a small web design team um, here in Colorado. Uh, And that kind of was the gateway that got me sort of marginally aware of tech. After that, though, I worked at a science museum for several years, first in a gift shop, then in one of the laboratories, uh, running biology and doing inquiry-based science education for museum guests. And I did that for about four years. It was great. I loved the environment. I loved the focus on learning. Uh, But, you know, museums, nonprofit, not necessarily the best wages, although the work was very fulfilling. Um, I started looking around and I was aware of tech um, and there was a nonprofit code school right in town um, that would in less than a year, get me job ready as a junior developer. So I ended up, was very suspicious, you know, there's, there's a lot of things that sound too good to be true. So I did a lot of research. I shadowed a, a class. I attended several workshops. I bombarded the instructors with tons of questions. I eventually enrolled. Uh, went through that program and I was getting ready to graduate, starting to do some interviews uh, when a position opened up on the front end instructional team. And throughout the whole time at the school, I had been doing lots of volunteering with workshops, working as a TA, leading student-led study groups, writing lots of uh, spike lessons um, for the student body and things like that. And they were like, this one's a big nerd. This one likes teaching, so maybe we'll see if this one wants to come on out to the staff. And so I interviewed and um, did that for six years and uh, was recently laid off at the end of uh, October. But since then, been back on the job hunt, really looking into civic tech. But I, 19-year-old me would never have expected that I would ever be a developer. Uh it's probably not something I'll do forever. It's been a great career so far, but I'm definitely not one to stay in the same industry for 30 years. So, <laughs> yeah. You know, it's, I have young, well, I mean, they're adults, but young kids. Um, my, and two of, two of my kids, uh, 20 and 18, my girls, I have always told them, whatever you get your degree in, your passion is your minor. Your ability to get a job is your major. Your parents failed you <laughs> with world religion. And what was the other one? 
creative writing. Creative writing. Now, both, I am not knocking those degrees. They, that, that's a fantastic, well-rounded degree. Having an understanding of religion as a gen, and how it applies to society throughout cultures, throughout time, I think is vastly important to the improvement of society. Uh, creative writing, I've never been very good at, but I certainly enjoy a fiction novel or story. Um, however, as you experienced, not necessarily career-defining debt. Yeah. So, well, I just find it, you know, to ask a 17, 18 year old to make a decision about that when most of us haven't really experienced a lot of what jobs are even out there. You know, I had no idea that software developer was a thing. I had no idea that, you know, optometrist was on the table. I had no idea that there were so many different, fascinating, exciting roles. Um, I'm sure like many people, I grew up in a household and a culture that expected college as a default. That was just what sure. we did. And, you know, I, even, even way back to when I was a kid, the question, what do you want to be when you grow up? I never had an answer. I just enjoyed most things, which is how I ended up with my degrees because they gave me a lot of room to take tons of different subjects outside of my focuses. So I took like ornithology and history of the American frontier and like tons and tons of different classes. Uh, and religion classes were fascinating because they were sociology and art and history and literature all rolled into one degree. And so that's how I ended up with my not very feasible, uh, you know, career uh, choices for degrees because really what I enjoyed most was just wide learning um, and just learning as much as I could. And that's always been my uh, strength and my weakness is omnivorous curiosity. Um, in a world that really wants you to have a particular focus and direction, I struggled. I struggled for sure. Oh, yeah. I mean, I fell into what I do. I mean, when I originally, when someone said, what do you want to do for your living? I was like, I either a lawyer or architect. And then I didn't finish school. So that blew both of those out of the water. Uh, and I, you know, ended up working at a bookstore and ended up managing the computer book section. And this was mm -hmm. back when, you know, computers, although not new, were very expensive, reasonably slow, all proprietary. Um, and I just started I mean, sponging all of that information and ended up where I am today. Um, do you think that, I mean, you were at the Turing School for six years mm -hmm. and as an instructor. Now, did you, this is going to sound weird. I have no doubt that you have reached senior level instructor status for junior level knowledge because that's what the Turing School would do, right? Yeah. Do you feel that your senior level knowledge has expanded well, for example, I mean, would you feel transparently honest in saying, hey, I'm I'm a mid-level dev. I've just been and I've been teaching for the last six years. Yeah, I would definitely consider myself. Uh, it's an interesting thing. And this thing that the instructors we would always discuss is like, how marketable are we? Are we shooting ourselves in the foot career wise by staying on and teaching rather than going out and being devs, especially those of us who went straight from student to instructor, um, which there were a few, um, fewer over time, but uh, there were some of us and that is something that we would often discuss. Um, yeah. I mean, transparently, I feel like I have a really great understanding of code. I have a really great understanding of working collaboratively. I feel like I have got 
very strong skills in conducting code reviews, in receiving code reviews, all of those uh, professional skills. Um, the main uh, points that I feel the weakest in are working in large code bases uh, and like dev ops type things, um, deployment, that sort of thing, because I don't have a ton of experience with it. Um, that being said, those are skills that are needed. And so I feel like I'm definitely not fit to be a senior because you need someone who is comfortable with those technologies who can kind of lead the way. Um, but I feel like I would make a very solid advanced junior or uh, entry mid-level uh, developer. But I mean, it really requires a lot of work and a lot of self-motivation to keep those skills sharp, to keep finding new technologies, to continue learning, to uh, continue to stay up to date so that our curriculum could stay up to date. Um, and it is a challenge when you're an instructor. Um, a lot of us are soft hearts who want yeah. to give a lot to our students who are doing something that is incredibly challenging. And it's very easy to fall into the trap of, you know, giving all of your time to that and not reserving any time for your own professional development. And it was an ongoing struggle. Sure. I, you know, you just said something. It, First, let's actually, why, before I get into this, why did you study to become a front-end engineer and then pivot to teaching? Was it you fell into it or because you, you mentioned earlier that that's what happened, but what was the decision pattern for that pivot? Yeah. Um, so for the pivot from front end. So one of the reasons I did front end, because uh, the Turing School has a back end program and a front end program. Uh, I really actually enjoy back end work quite a lot. I love systems thinking. Um, I really enjoy organizing data. The act of writing queries to be very efficient is like, oh, I love that. I can do that for hours. But one of the reasons I pivoted to front end is because I think the part where I come alive is the process of making good data accessible, digestible, and available for the end user to make informed decisions and to be, so that the end user can connect to opportunities, resources, information uh, that they would otherwise maybe not have access to. And so that layer of that human interaction um, and making these tools useful and usable is really, uh, I think, where my heart lives. Um, that that service area, and so that's where front end. You know, there's something to be said that that bleeds into back end as well. But that layer of the interaction and the uh, interfaces, that's that's what I really enjoy. From teaching, um, you know, working at the museum, doing a lot of science inquiry education, always loved that. Love, I I really love helping people connect to concepts and ideas that. They maybe find a little bit daunting, but being able to grab onto it, challenge themselves to be uncomfortable, to work through that process, the discomfort of, of uh, not knowing, to like work toward knowing, but also knowing that the knowledge is not the end goal, the understanding and the patterns that you use to get to places of understanding, that's what's important and valuable. And that process is very fulfilling for me. And I feel like... Uh, something I very much enjoy. So I think that's been the source of the pivot. And going through that process myself is really what drove me to find joy in helping others through that process too. That's a great topic to talk about there, that knowledge is not the goal. So let's talk about math. Okay. Just for a brief second. Yeah. 
If I say to you, the answer is five, but I don't tell you how to, if I don't help you understand how to get there, the fact that the answer is five doesn't really mean all that much. Yeah. Because it could be one plus four, three plus two, any number of fractions times fractions, mm -hmm. right? Uh, and it's the understanding of how you got to five that actually matters because the knowledge is the knowledge is the result. Yep. Yeah, I agree. It's something like, you know, I see this a lot with junior developers memorizing sorting algorithms, just memorizing the answer uh, because they know it comes up in some interviews sometimes. Uh, and like, great, when you run into that particular algorithm, yes, you'll know that you'll have the answer to give. But that says nothing about your skills. It says nothing about your ability to break down a problem. It doesn't tell me anything about your ability to research and ask questions and uh, work through problems and really, uh, you know, write code, try things, read your error messages, all of those processes that are necessary to the work. Um, but just having and memorizing the answer so that when somebody asks you the question, you'll know the answer, that's satisfying. It's easy, it's really seductive. Uh, and that what you just said, like if I look at this problem and I just am told the answer is five, but I don't understand why the answer is five. I'll know that the answer is five to that question forever. But as soon as I'm confronted with six minus one, the answer is also five, but I won't know how to get there. Right. So the process, yeah, that's one of the reasons it's so easy, especially for early learners and especially for people who've been raised in fixed mindset, the comfort that we give ourselves to prove that, oh, I can do this. I'm worthwhile is look at this big pile of facts that I know. Look at, look at my accumulated worth. This is how much I uh, can do this and how much you should hire me because it's easy to measure. And a lot of times when we're hiring, that's what we look at. We're like, well, what's your accumulated stack of knowledge? Because it's much harder for both the person presenting and the person trying to assess. Here are my tools. Here are the tools that I have that allow me to learn whatever you give me. Uh, it's one thing to say, here's my stack of knowledge. Give me, this is my worth. To say, here's my stack of knowledge. It's not limited. This is not over. Here are the tools I use to build this stack so far, just as proof that the tools are good. And it's hard to do. It's hard to assess. It's hard to evaluate. It's hard to present. Um, and that's one of the reasons why with fixed mindset that uh, we learn in school. And by the way, fixed mindset is this idea that we have traits and they're on or off. We're either smart or we're not. We're good at remembering people's names or we're not. We can we're good at coding and, and design thinking or we're not. Um, whereas growth mindset is this idea that with sustained effort practice, we can always improve in things. Not to say that it's our fault if we're not good at things. It's just that we can always improve, maybe not become great at things, but there is opportunity for growth and we're not static. Um, so I know that you know that, but. <laughs> no, I, I was going to call you out terms. if you didn't bring that part up. So I'm glad you did. Yeah. Um, you know, the reality is as an employer, I am in co constant search for people who know how to solve problems. <laughs> Schools don't generally teach that. No, heuristics is very much not a thing that is yeah. taught and explicitly anyway. To become a 
comprehensive value to an organization. You have to be able to solve problems because the method of solving problems is not now some of the actions you might take are different, but the method of solving a problem, you know, out of this space, why are you out of this space? The why, okay, is no different than why are you angry? Why are you stubborn? What is the wall that you're not willing to overcome personally or in your relationship or whatever? It's all this, it, 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 the, the methodology is the same. You have to peel it back, find the base and work up. Now, as you get more experienced, certainly you look at an error message or, you know, my partner responded this way and therefore I know I'm being an asshole. Okay. But as you get more experience, you can have some relative assumed responses for a more efficient success. But again, you have to start down here and say, okay, our problem's up here, but this is not where it started. It never is. It no. never is. There's always, it, it doesn't matter if it's software or relationships. Yep. Um, so I, I'm really glad you touched on that. And I'm really glad that you touched on the fact that, sure. Uh, well, and here's a good example. Um, math, I'll go back to math just because it, everything, you know, everything we kind of start with goes with math because we're in the tech field. Uh, I am very good at business math. Like, boom. Okay. Business math. You put calculus in front of me. And the first thing I say is there's too many parentheses. I don't even want to bother. That doesn't mean I couldn't figure it out. It's just yeah. for me, there's just no return on investment. Yeah. Right. However, if schools would teach how to solve problems as a core, like skill set, right? It, it's where everything starts. Improving on reading, improving on comprehension, improving on math, improving on workshop, woodshop, personal finance, whatever. Mm -hmm. The world as a whole, and especially I'm, I tend to be a little U.S. centric, but our society would be better. Oh, and, I agree. All right. Um, so the second part of this. For our listeners, some of you may be tired of this subject. Um, it is a. Uh, a subject that has gotten a lot of uh, publicity over the past few years. Um, but I do encourage you to listen because, as you know, we have had Dr. Loran Starr uh, on this podcast multiple times about this subject. Um, and she is a literal expert, like PhD in this subject. Um, and it's an important subject because we are, a lot of us, because of media on all sides are getting polarized and centered on them versus us when if we want to be truly great as a society it's not them versus us it's all of us together growing and embracing uh you know the gifts and the beauty thereof uh for those of you who most of you know i'm a nomad most of the time and we're in the nomad community. And, you know, one of the things that we do, that project that I'm working on has just announced is what we call it the creatives community partnership. And nomads are largely feral people. And I mean, we are, 
Um, I mean, there's there's quite a bit of effort that I put into being as reasonably civil as I can be. Um, and, but there's a beauty in that, in being feral. You are not being bound by corporatists because that is how what defines our society is corporatists. And being able to break out from that and to find your own beauty and your own creativity and find success in that is better for society as a whole. Now, with that speech out of the way, we are going to talk about the infamous DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion. And this is really an important topic. And I think that Lita can provide some insight from a younger perspective versus, say, uh, Loran Starr and I, who are not old, but certainly not young. Okay. We groan when we crawl out of bed, even when we weren't drinking too much. Right. Um, so let's start with our, our, uh, uh, this is a solid question. What are the greatest barriers to entry for minorities in tech? So I'll preface this by saying that, you know, I don't have any formal studies in this. Um, what I'm basing my answers are, are observations of hundreds of students that I've taught who've all attempted to find work as developers um, of a fairly diverse student body in terms of race, gender, and especially uh, background, you know, getting into tech. Um, and also my own lived experience as a queer, non-binary person of color in tech. Um, so please take everything I say with a grain of salt. I definitely tend to speak in generalities, but I never mean them. I'm a big fan of the particularity and the fact that everything depends on context. Uh, so greatest barriers to entry for minorities in tech. You know, I think that our barriers have lowered the barriers to entry in recent years. I think they're maybe tightening up a little bit right now, again, just with the uncertainty of the market. But I think for a long time, you know, there was a period uh, in the last few years where we saw bootcamp grads were getting hired more often. Um, the need for a CS degree, the need to understand core CS theoretical concepts was starting to fade away. We started to see more interview processes that were less whiteboard this uh, sorting algorithm and more sit down with a developer from our team and approach this ticket. What are some of, how would you approach this code base? How would you start going about solving this problem? Which is much more reflective of the day-to-day -day work that would be done uh, and prioritize things like collaboration, communication, all of those pieces that are really critical for a healthy team that can work well together and solve problems well together. Uh, and so in those ways, I think there have been lots of really great efforts at lowering barriers for anyone coming in, which is really uh, heartening to see. I think one of the bigger issues that tech has faced and is still facing, um, and it's not to say there are no barriers anymore, but I think the bigger issue that I see is retention of diverse teams, um, teams that have not just diversity of thought, which is a phrase I see get used a lot in the tech community, but diversity of race, culture, lived experience, uh, the way that we move through the world, the way that the world reacts to us in it. Um, I think what happens is we do a lot of work on the front to bring in candidates uh, who, you know, look different from us, think different from us, have different backgrounds from us. Uh, but we don't do a lot to analyze 
the assumptions that we make in our teams, the, the processes that are in place in our organizations, which are born under uh, certain norms, certain biases that haven't been examined. Uh, and so bringing, the, bringing people in, bringing diverse workers in, into an environment where they are still considered the additional workers, the extra workers, the new and fun and different workers, um, still ends up causing a lot of harm. And uh, I don't have numbers for this or a particular study to cite, but uh, just anecdotally from speaking with the uh, particularly like people of color in tech that I know, there's just a lot of extra cognitive load for uh, non-white developers and non-Asian developers, because let's be real, Asian yeah, developers say, are not to. minority. <laughs> um, but specifically Black, Latino, uh, or Latinx, and Indigenous workers in tech very, very uh, end up having a lot of additional burdens on top of their technical work. Uh, so, so let's yeah. drill down on that. Mm -hmm. um, you say processes are biased based on, you know, the, you know, basically essentially the people that put them in place. Not even, uh, I'm not saying like maliciously biased. No, I, I'm not suggesting. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, every, every person, and let's be clear. I mean. It's just the air we, we, we breathe. It's the water we swim in. It's, you know, what we're raised in. The, yeah, they, yeah, exactly. Cultures t tend to be their own, their own melting pot mm -hmm. and they have their own rules and regulations of interaction and the whole bit. So certainly if we're talking about a team that was put together over 10 years and the team is all white or primarily white and Asian, those processes are going to have a certain mindset. Mm -hmm. That being said, and let me be clear, I think that we should always be open to growth, which is what we're talking about here. So we shouldn't just shut down someone saying, well, have we tried X? Uh, but on the other hand, there is certainly a level of success that has been achieved and we may have better things to do than listen to junior new African-American or, or an indigenous developer question all of the hard work and effort we've already done. So how do we handle that problem? Because we certainly, you never want to shut down someone being inquisitive. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, you also do have to focus them. We're talking about employers here. And employers, they can be the best employer in the world. But when it boils down to it, our jobs are not profit. That's a side effect. Our job is to make sure that we, can, we are responsible for feeding the families that we employ. Period. Mm -hmm. the end. Now, hopefully that's done with profit, right? Otherwise you get bad management, making bad decisions, laying off a bunch of people like you see every damn year through an acquisition. Yep. Okay. But how do we handle that? How do we, how do we handle that bias? And, and, and can you give me a, I mean, I know it's anecdotal because, and I'm just picking on you a little bit. No, you're I get it. You're a teacher. You're not in the workplace. Mm -hmm. Right. Teachers are different. They have a different mind. They're trying to encourage the growth and build of a student. You're not necessarily dealing with the day to day of actually trying to get shit done. Mm -hmm. So elaborate a bit for us. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I think to answer your question about, you know, how do we listen, but 
realistically, the business has to keep moving on. The way that things have worked have been successful. Uh, it takes time and resources that we don't necessarily have on our teams in order to tinker with that, which may have a negative return on an investment, may have no return on an investment, uh, like no negative one, but no positive one either. So that still may be a waste of resources. Um, there's no guarantee. Do we change up everything about how we do uh, just for a few new employees? Um, I mean, ultimately, I think this is one of the reasons that the status quo is the, the status quo, uh, the static, you know, unchanging, fixed. It has its own inertia and momentum. Um, I'm going to go a little bit off the rails here because no, in in my uh, late 30s here, I've become more and more of the ways in which, uh, you know, workers are exploited. I've become much uh much more explicitly anti-capitalist in my in my late thirties. Here, I've become more radical than rather than less radical, like my parents told me it would happen. Um, but I would say that uh, in capitalism, which you know is undoubtedly the system with which, especially American um, employment operates under, um, the drive is always growth or at least maintaining, although maintenance is still considered bad. It's considered stagnation. Um, there is also a built-in sense of urgency that we don't have time for things, that we have scarcity, uh, that there is not time to dedicate to these other pursuits that aren't necessarily directly driving the bottom line. Uh, and to your point, there is a degree of that. You know, We want to make sure that our employees are gainfully employed, that their families are able to um, have food, have shelter, have a little bit of luxury, because that is a right, not a, a, you know, just a nice to have when you're a human being. Um, and Wait. at the same time, yes. Wait, luxury is not a right. It's a privilege. Yes, it is. It's a privilege. But what I mean by luxury is not a yacht. You know, it's so not what is multiple countertops. What I mean by luxury is anything above and beyond survival needs. Give That's me an a family pet, example. a family pet. Nobody needs a pet. Pets enrich our lives. I would say that, you know, a family or a child that wants a pet, but is unable to have one for financial reasons, that is a tangible loss. And like, I think that is terrible art. Art is a luxury. Music is a luxury. The ability to have time to take care of your sick kid, that's a luxury. That is something that is not just, I guess that that one, that last one falls under like a right for anyone's count. But that's also a right that most people in our country don't have. Most of us are tied to jobs that do not afford us dignity or comfort in life. Comfort, you know, I think about things, uh, if you look at uh, food banks, if you think about what you donate to a food bank, most of us are donating the weird gray asparagus tips canned in water that have been sitting in our, in our pantry, because like, I don't want to eat that. But why would we expect that someone who's in need also wants to eat that? Like, yeah, it's healthy. It's good. It's nourishment. But is it good? Does it provide satisfaction? Does it provide relief? So that's what I mean by luxury. I don't mean excess. I mean things that are outside the strict 
algebra of survival, things that make life worthwhile, things that help us build connection to each other, things that bring us comfort and satisfaction that is not just, well, you're alive, so why are you complaining? To me, that mindset is really dangerous. And I feel like, never mind, I was going to say a broad generalization about a lot of employers feel like their only goal is to provide survival and no more, and that anything else uh, is like not their responsibility. And maybe it isn't. Maybe it should be. Maybe there are employers who decide that it is their responsibility. I don't know. I don't have all the answers. I think so. So for, for command prompt, and, and this is why we're not some big mega corp. We have mm -hmm. a certain culture and ethos. We don't take private equity because private equity are they're vultures. Uh, one of our number one competitors has done equitable rounds years year over year over year, and their shareholders will likely never make back what has been invested in because of that demonstrable earthquake of just damage that they're causing without people realizing. Right. Um, I want to back up a little bit because you, you touched on a lot of things. <laughs> um, I think that I generally, well, I know that I generally agree with you just because of my own ethos. Um, but I also think that our lines are probably a little different. Sure. Uh, you know, I was a Gen Xer, which means I essentially raised myself. So damn it. Why can't you? Yeah. Uh, that doesn't mean that I'm not open to or sensitive to some of the more interesting sociological problems that we have with current generations. Uh, not the least of which is the documented, scientifically studied damage that social media causes, especially to young women. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think we need to bring it back a little let because we kind of dived off in this the, a little more but, to tech. Yeah, the, well, <laughs> no, I, I think that's important because one tech is not unique. Exactly. This problem exists across all paradigms. And I will give you a yeah. perfect example. If I went to go be a kindergarten teacher, I would be called a pervert period. The end. Yeah. Okay. Uh, there's not a lot of male nurses. And there's many reasons for that, mm -hmm. uh, not the least of which it's not considered a masculine field. Or two, uh, a lot of guys aren't as nurturing as a nurse should be. Okay, not or saying you can't be. I'm just yeah, saying weren't we're never raised or expected to yeah, be we, nurturing. That's exactly right. Um, so this is more than about tech. A lot of people, and, and just like there's not a lot of female plumbers, okay? There's not a lot of mm -hmm. female garbage workers or even electricians for that matter. Mm -hmm. um, and a, a tech kind of gets the, gets poked a lot. Why? Because if you're halfway decent in tech, it is a generally easy, I didn't say it doesn't take effort, or simple is a better word. The ladder to climb is simple to make a good living in tech. That doesn't mean there's not burn and churn. It doesn't mean that there aren't good employers and bad employers. But I do think tech gets a bad name in this problem because what we have done, and even our president has said, you know, he was questioned, what do you tell a 50 year old that has just gotten laid off because of transitions in their market? He said, learn to code. Clearly on that specific issue, I invite our president to get his old ass up and learn to code because at 50 years old, it's not easy. 
not impossible, but it's not, it is not simple and it is not easy, especially if you were a plumber for 40 years or 30 years. Okay. Um, so I do think tech gets a bad rap because what it essentially is, is that you're saying African-Americans, which by the way, generally speaking, represent about 15% of the population, about seven and a half percent of them are in tech as of 2021. Now, some people would say that's a terrible statistic. Well, it actually isn't because if you consider where the concentration of African-Americans live, there's not a lot of tech. Okay. So if you look at it holistically, the challenges are more than how do we get a particular culture or race to be more represented in a market? I think it has to go back all the way to elementary and middle school. Forget high school. Elementary and middle school. We are investing the wrong money in the wrong places to produce a positive result for disadvantaged youth to be able to achieve in tech or any other STEM field. Because we don't teach them what? How to problem solve. Yeah. The thing is, something I think about from my time working at the Science Museum, studies have shown that by the age of six, it might be seven, but six or seven by like, that's second or third grade. That's not very old. By that age, kids have already decided based on the opinions and the responses of the adults around them, whether or not they are good at science. It's that early. There are studies that show when, you know, when young boys mess up on a math problem, people tell them, that's okay, we make mistakes. Here's what the answer is. Let's figure out where you went wrong. When young girls make mistakes on math, in order to comfort them, adults around them will say things like, that's okay. Girls just aren't good at math. And these messages, they come through. Um, and there's a ton of reasons why. You know, you said that there aren't a lot of tech hubs near historically Black communities. Well, why is that? It's because accretions of wealth happen by, you know, systematic design outside of Black communities. Uh, Black communities are often barred from those accretions of community wealth. Um, not always, but generally in, especially in America, where you and I both reside, that's how it is. That's how it's been. Uh, and so I think you're absolutely right that we can't just look at tech as is and say, well, you got to fix it. There are so many factors at play. And even though that's the case, it doesn't mean that we have to wait for fixes to be changed earlier in the pipeline. Yes, we can't yeah. necessarily address the source necessarily because the source is vast, but tech is one of the reasons developers are paid so well is because tech is one of the surest means for companies to develop capital. And as tech workers, as developers, we are the drivers of that creation of capital, which is why we're paid so well, because we are a reliable source of capital for companies and for the economy. And that's why we're paid so well. One of my dearest friends is a social worker and makes basically poverty level money because that is not a source of capital. It's a crucial necessary job, but because we live in a capitalist society, 
that work, that human level work is not valued because it does not produce wealth for okay. anyone else. So, but right, sorry, I went off the lines. That's... No, it's okay. Um, <laughs> That's I, what I well, mean. Like, I'm, I'm going to yeah. just barb at you a little bit, you communist. Sure. Um, <laughs> So, I consider myself more of a socialist, if anything. <laughs> uh, socialism is just one step to communism. Um, no, no, let me hear me out because I know that, that people are like, oh God, here we go. No, that's not the case. I will say, and I mean this with love, mm -hmm. your understanding of camp capitalism is narrow and naive. Capitalism is not the problem. Oh no, capitalism I think toxic is, capitalism, unchecked capitalism is bad. <laughs> uh, I, so... I want, I recently saw a short, uh, and you have a good point is that there is in the, the comment was on toxic masculinity. There is, you know, there's masculinity and then there are toxic people, which may result in toxic masculinity. Same goes for capitalism. Mm -hmm. People who do not invest, for example, as a social work, social worker or a sociologist, uh, in those fields are bad capitalists. Capitalism is not about the ultimate gain of wealth. It is a system, a mathematical system, in fact, of supply, demand, result. Okay. And hopefully you find an equilibrium where there is a holistic win. So what you've got is a government and it doesn't matter which side we're talking about here oh no not at all uh we have a government who is invested in the gdp and direct profitable result of assets and resources not of people but i'll tell you what remember when we went back to the when we first started this conversation about how if we invest in people there's you know go, we, the curve is different those companies that take a moment and say, I have a team that's falling apart. Why? Well, I don't fucking know. I'm not a sociologist. I'm not a health and wellness counselor. I'm not a psychologist. I don't know. I just know that they're doing this. The manager that steps back and says, wait a minute. Oh my God, there's experts in this field. And brings them in to solve that problem especially if the team is willing to stop doing this for just a, a week and go like this, you will build a stronger team, a more connected team, a more intentional team, and guess what? A more profitable team. Capitalism has all of that available to it. The problem mm -hmm. is the majority of the human race are assholes. They're selfish and they're assholes. What about me? Why should I pay for this? Uh, you know, how do, you know, I shouldn't have to pay for your kid's daycare. Mm -hmm. Okay. Fair. I'll make you a deal. Increase minimum wage to the point where it at least pegs inflation so that people can pay for daycare. You don't have to pay for it because capitalism allows for the increase of the minimum wage. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you, it's just over a spectrum of value, you will increase prices. And guess what? Since the buying power of the base level of society is higher, you're going to make more money. But people are too busy saying, well, I'm, I'm just going to pick on Jeff Bezos just because he's an easy target. He actually does a lot of charitable work that people don't know. 
They really don't. Amazon does a ridiculous amount of charity work. Uh, but, um, you know, where's my next yacht? Right? That's what people think of. And that's the problem, right? It's not... Now, socialism isn't the answer. That doesn't mean that socialist policies do not have a place. I absolutely oh, agree sure. with that. Socialism and communism... I mean, just historically speaking, unless we can figure out how to fix people, which will never happen because that's a subjective statement. Yeah, it's subjective. Those always lead us down a path of wondering where the toilet paper is eventually. Um, so, yeah, I don't come at my capitalism. <laughs> Listen, here's here's my take. You know, I understand the free market. I, I think where it falls apart, like you said, is because uh, with all the breaks off, with corporations being afforded rights as individuals, whereas people are stripped of rights uh, more and more and have less and less collective power to work against corporations, which have a lot of capital, uh, you end up with situations where a few individuals can sequester the majority of wealth uh, and there are no breaks on that. There are very few checks on that. And you're just counting on someone to say, you know what, that's enough wealth. I think I don't need any more. Let's make, let, let's let it overflow into the next tier down. Uh, it's, it's not realistic and it was never designed to work the way that, you know, Reagan decided it said that it would work. Um, it was never meant to do that. It was meant to sequester wealth into smaller and smaller groups. Uh, so that's that. That's what I mean when I say capitalism. I'm not saying the structure of the system. It's similar to saying, you know, I love science. Science as a system is self-correcting, uh, but as an actual applied uh, industry or field, it is susceptible to the same failures of greed, money, uh, by confirmation bias, all of those things are there. It doesn't mean that science is bad. Um, it just means that the life, the live day-to-day -day application that we see in the system is flawed. Um, and that's, that's my criticism of capitalism, you know, maybe as a system, maybe as, um, a means of measuring, uh, resources, demand, uh, the market is not necessarily bad, but absolutely the version that we're living under it's real. It's, it's real gooey. It's not, it's not good in there. <laughs> yeah, it, it, uh, Kelsey Hightower. I don't know if you know who he is. He's a very mm -hmm. well-known. Okay. Kelsey Hightower is a very well-known, very well-respected, uh, African-American tech. And he is uh, absurdly popular. He was a director of something at Google for many years. Cool. And he, uh, he's, talked about this off and on at this challenge. And I think what a lot of people forget, or not even forget, they don't even know that it actually doesn't take that much wealth to generate wealth. Mm -hmm. The problem is that we're not, with that particular statement, is we do not teach young people that very thing. No. The value that we teach is you must have this blame. That's what we teach. We don't, uh, you know, I, I once, when we first started offering uh, our 401k for, uh, for our employees, uh, we had some employees who were like, I'm not going to, you know, I don't know anything about this. I'm not going to contribute to this. Oh. And I said, 
So I'm not a financial advisor, okay? I can't tell you what to do when it comes to this. But what I can do is give you a math problem. And since all my guys are DBAs and programmers and they love this. <laughs> and I, I don't remember the exact number, but it was, it was small. It was either $25 or $50 a month, okay? And I said, look, if all you do is 50, to, I'll just use 50 because I don't remember the math in my head. $50 a month, which all of you can do, right? We're in tech. Just stop buying the damn lattes from Starbucks, okay? $50 a month in, in, in your 401k on a standard S&P return in 25 years, or I think it was 20 years, I said, is $75,000. You didn't do anything. You just, you literally stopped watching Netflix for a month, every month, right? And that's the, the, the problem that I think a lot of people have is that you think of $100,000 as this, even as a lower income person, uh, as this enormous amount of money, but it's not. And it is obtainable, generally speaking. I know there are definite exceptions, especially in situations where you are making seven twenty-five an hour, which is the federal minimum wage, right? Uh, so I don't want to make light of that, but we are focused in tech here. If you're making minimum wage in tech, you're probably not that good at tech. <laughs> you know, I mean, nobody hires minimum wage in tech unless, unless you're an intern, right? And even then, it's not seven twenty-five; it's twenty or fifteen or something an hour. Um, as we start to roll up here, um, there's a couple of things I'd like to touch base on. And frankly, I think you and I need to, if you're willing, to have you on again because we're touching on yeah, some great. That. We're having some great things here. Uh, that we could expand on further. And I think we could learn a lot from each other. Um, but there's a couple of topics here. Tech thinks that having a more diverse workforce is charity. What do you mean by that? I guess, I think a better phrasing would be that tech views DEI work, you know, diversity, equity, inclusion, justice, abolition work as a nice to have. It goes on the website. It's in our value statement. It shows up on you know, our careers page. Come work with us. This is what we value. But a lot of companies, when the chips are down, that's the work that gets prioritized at the bottom of the list. We got to just build features. We just got to do these things. Oh, that coach that we hired to help 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 us identify the areas where we have bias in our um, systems and organizations who you know are helping us point out areas where we can you know, even do things like make our documentation more accessible. Uh, well, that's nice. We'll get back to that when things are easier. It's viewed as not necessarily an integral and necessary part of the work, but as something that we get to when we have time and extra money to do. And so that is, that's the viewpoint. That's what I mean by uh, like, oh, look at this, what good work we're doing. Yay for us. Uh, well, I don't disagree. Always... Yeah. Well, it's a marketing term, right? DEI is a marketing term. Uh, it doesn't mean that there isn't good things behind the marketing term, but it's a marketing term. So people are going to latch onto it because that's what the masses are screaming about. But what, what do you mean outside of the obvious of documentation being potentially available to say the vision impaired? What is documentation? What's the barrier of entry there that you're discussing maybe it doesn't exist you know 
Maybe your team is built with senior devs in mind. Maybe you have this idea that your code truly is self-documenting. Bullshit. <laughs> no well, code, no matter how your code is self-documenting, you're, you're a terrible developer. I mean, <laughs> you may be a genius so, at coming up with an algorithm, but you're a terrible developer. Yeah, right. So, and it's like things like that, you know, junior, I'm, it's not to say that there are no uh, senior developers who are from marginalized groups. That's definitely not true. Um, but I, you know, I'd say it is true that a lot of junior devs coming up, there are, it is a more diverse group coming up, which is great. If you don't make your documentation, your processes junior friendly, you're going to just continue having the same you know, old guard, um, people who speak the same language, who have the same types of understanding and viewpoint, um, who approach code in the same way. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I, to me, that's a barrier. Using language, you know, something that I have seen in my time as an instructor is so many tutorials out there um, use, uh, you know, classics like foobar as a variable name. Um, just as a placeholder, just as a filter. Sure. Uh, someone new to that who doesn't know the historical context of FUBAR, that's a barrier. It's just saying like, wait, what is this? Is it important to understand the concept that's being illustrated? No. So why did we make it harder? Why did we have to throw in a little in-joke to make ourselves feel better? You know, why are all of these uh, tutorials, these blog posts written explaining different algorithms using sports metaphors? Not everyone's into sports. Um, pop culture references, things like that, um, comic book references. For every one of those, you gotta have, make sure that you have a reference about, I don't know, some some other topic, uh, especially if your, your learning materials are intentionally designed for audiences who aren't like you. Uh, but I think a lot of times when we're writing documentation or writing tutorials, we're not thinking about that. We're writing it for our younger self who didn't understand a thing, um, which is not bad. That means there's a great diversity of documentation out there. But, uh, you know, for boot camps, for universities, anyone teaching this, this, uh, this technology and these ways of thinking, these, uh, these types of problem solving skills, uh, it's important to be cognitive of like, who who are you picturing as your student? Who is you, who are you picturing as the learner? So yeah, I mean that goes into communication theory. When you communicate, you communicate for your audience, uh, and most people aren't able to do that. They communicate from their viewpoint. Mm -hmm. All right, I just had this conversation with our team uh, here. Is that when you're having a problem? Because since we're all remote, we're always chatting, right, in the yeah. chat box using Google chat and thank God, not teams or Slack. Um, <laughs> it's terrible platforms. Uh, not that Google chat is that much better, but, um, and there, you know, I would call them out. I'm like, why are you taking it? Why is this taking so long? I'm like, well, blah, 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 blah. I said, well, did you get on the goddamn phone? And I had to explain this basic communication theory about this because, and they were like, they, we didn't even think of getting on the phone. Are you freaking kidding me? <laughs> um, however, your comment about metaphors, we do have to have a baseline, right? I'm not into sports, but I know how basketball works. I know how baseball works. I know how football works. Now for me, a better metaphor is cars, right? Um, but 
you do have to have some level of baseline that people can attach to. And there is no metaphor out there that I can think of that everyone's going to identify with. Oh, no, not at all. Or even majority. Which is why for every, you know, car metaphor or for every time I teach how to write a JavaScript class and I use a car, an automobile or vehicle, and I talk about, you know, inheriting from that class to create a bicycle or a car um, and to add more and more detail in there. Uh, for every one of those, I should also have another version where we talk about, okay, our, our parent class is going to describe an organism. And then we'll break that down and we'll describe birds versus mammals. And we'll break that down and describe cats versus dogs. Uh, the, the thing is, I think the thing that I have found is that instruction is hard. Uh, it is hard to teach people how to code because it requires uh, the ability to teach in a diverse way to meet people's diverse learning styles um, and to like read the room. And I think that applies directly to how we interact as team members, you know, working on a product together. Uh, we have to be able to listen to each other in different ways. We have to be able to explain things in more than one way. We have to be able to document things uh, clearly and have more than one pair of eyes on it. We love a code review. We love PRs. We love getting in there and commenting. And but we don't do that for you know the installation instructions. We don't do that for our readme. We don't do that for uh, our wikis. One person writes the wiki and that's it. Um, isn't there, so, yeah. you know, and let me be, I've been teaching for a long time. I think the first class I taught, I was 19 years old. Mm -hmm. um, so I do understand where you're coming from. And I also think that there's certainly a responsibility of the student. Oh, um, for sure. Student but it's not on the student. If you teach them in a way that their learning style has no, it's like sliding on glass. You have to build in scaffolding that the student can climb. Agreed. Absolutely agreed. I, when I say the responsibility of the student, uh, the example that I would give is let's talk about, you know, you said organism, car. I don't, I, although I don't think having two examples is overkill. Uh, I do think that the basis is the same. So the student should raise their hand and say, okay, Miss Professor, I have no fucking clue how baseball works. And you take 30 seconds to explain. Well, okay, five minutes to explain it. Baseball's not a complicated game. Uh, or even cars. Cars are not that complicated. They got an engine. They got a transmission. They have brakes. They have tires. They have a van. Okay? That's basically what a car is. Um, which, and just explaining that builds up that scaffolding. And then on their own, they can take their notes and go, and now that we have almighty Google and and ChatGPT, go ask don't it. Don't even start with. We don't have time to go into the <laughs> copyright, trademark, intellectual property stealing <laughs> ChatGPT. We'll do that another time. Um, but we have the tools available to us. Uh, yeah, to I, I don't learn. disagree. Um, I agree. I think the, you know one of the pieces that's there is what are you doing as the instructor to ensure that the classroom is a space where that student who doesn't understand cars when everyone else around them totally gets the metaphor and is understanding the concept that's being illustrated by this metaphor can raise their hand and feel like I have the right to stop my class and make the teacher review this in a different way when all the rest of my classmates seem to get it and are ready to move on. 
what have you done to ensure the safety of that student and to make it clear that their misunderstanding is worth everyone's time? And that's now, a really crucial part that a lot of instructors don't know how to do. I agree with you 100%. And that actually goes back to DEI. Um, although I will say that I think that DEI as an acronym is wrong um, because we already have diversity. It, diversity everywhere. We had women, men, different genders, uh, you know, Asians, whites, Hispanics, half and half, whatever. It's everywhere. Uh, what we don't have is inclusion. And what you're talking about is inclusion. When you make inclusion a priority, you automatically get diversity. And when you have inclusion, which creates diversity, you get equity. And that's really what you're talking about here when you're talking about teachers and, and, and teaching these students and helping them learn is creating a welcome, thus inclusive environment to be curious, not always have the answer, problem solve and build their knowledge, regardless of their background. Mm -hmm. And for me, what's most important, and this might bug you, but that's okay because we're wrapping up so you can cuss at me after. <laughs> Uh, is that the teachers need to remember that they work for the students. Oh yeah, absolutely. If, and I'm not even talking about professional students. If you're going to, if you are a professor and you do not recognize that your job exists because someone is sitting in your room paying a ridiculous amount of money because you likely couldn't cut it in the private sector anyway, <laughs> your job is to make sure that they feel welcome, included, and learning, even if that means you need to stop the class and extend the lecture or see them after class if it's not, you know, whatever. And my favorite, and I invite you to look this guy up. He's on YouTube. I don't remember his name. And I invite everybody. It is soc119.org. This is a sociology professor who publishes almost all of his lectures, workshops, all with his students online in YouTube. And I think that you will actually really like this guy because he, although he, he is a self-prescribed, I, I am a liberal, but he'll also stand up and say, and this is what's wrong with all of us, right? And he explains it from a scientific studied perspective, not from a, well, I feel this and therefore, no, we need to back it up and have the basis of structure and infrastructure. And with that, this has been More Than a Refresh, a podcast about data and the people who wrangle it. Our guest today was Lita Kane. Kane, you got it. And uh, Lita, uh, we'll make sure and have our producer put your LinkedIn profile on like a something on the video or something. Because I do <laughs> believe that although you're a little bit of a commie. I'm okay with that. I think that you would add <laughs> absolute value to any organization. Uh, and I would invite you to consider maybe not being an engineer, but being a peer advocate, a uh, facilitator of communication between diverse teams, that kind of thing. Because the value that you bring, and as a, when I look at this holistically, is that you understand these, these core principles and the problems that they are and can kind of bridge that divide between old guard, new guard, you know, different cultures. Uh, and I think that makes you more valuable from a paycheck perspective than how many lines of code you can accurately write. Awesome, thank you. It's you, been so great being on here and getting to chat with you and uh, do a little bit of like 
light, loving arguing. Um, and I would love to be back. It's been really great talking with you, JD. Thank you.